You're listening to Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies Digital Audio. Welcome to the Transformational Leadership for Transforming Times podcast, brought to you by the Institute for Transformational Leadership at the School of Continuing Studies at Georgetown University. The mission of the Institute is to develop and sustain worldwide communities of transformational leaders dedicated to awakening, engaging, and supporting the leadership required for a more sustainable and compassionate future. In each episode, we will explore current topics that are important for leaders who are navigating the complexities of today's world. My name is Bill Pullen. I am the Academic Director for the Institute, and I will be your host. In today's episode, we will explore anti-racist leadership with Dr. Karen Trader-Lay and Howard Ross. Dr. Karen Trader-Lay is CEO of KTA Global Partners a diversity, equity, inclusion, and organizational development change management consultancy, providing thought leadership, system-wide change interventions, and capacity building to corporations, nonprofit organizations, and academic institutions. The work of KTA Global Partners embodies her lifetime commitment to inclusion and equity across racial, gender, tribal, or other dividing lines in service to respecting our multitude of identities and our common humanity. She is the director of the Taya Peace Foundation, focusing on gender equity, poverty reduction, and food security in West Africa and HIV youth in South Africa. Recently, Karen implemented COVID education projects in six villages. She is the author of several public policy research studies impacting minority communities. Her article, Case Study, U.S. Department of State, Identifying Resistance and Managing Change, published in the Journal of Change Management, has been downloaded more than 5,000 times with citations in 242 global publications. Howard Ross is a lifetime social justice advocate, the founder of Cook Ross, and the founder of Udarta Consulting. He is considered one of the world's seminal thought leaders on identifying and addressing unconscious bias. Howard authored the Washington Post bestseller, Everyday Bias, Identifying and Navigating Unconscious Judgments in Our Daily Lives, Our Search for Belonging, how the need for connection is tearing us apart, and reinventing diversity, transforming organizational community to strengthen people, purpose, and performance. Howard has delivered programs in 47 states and over 40 countries. His audiences have included hundreds of Fortune 500 companies and major institutions within healthcare, government, and nonprofit sectors. He's been published by the Harvard Business Review, Washington Post, New York Times, Fast Company Magazine, Diversity Women Magazine, Forbes Magazine, Fortune Magazine, and has been a regular guest on National Public Radio for more than 10 years. I'm honored to have both of them with me today. Karen and Howard, thank you for joining me today. Thank you. It's a privilege. It's a pleasure to be with you, Bill. Great. I'd like to start our podcast that we are the Institute for Transformational Leadership. So I'd love to start with what does transformational leadership mean to you? And who are the most transformational leaders you know? Karen, you want to go ahead? Yeah, I'm sort of starting backwards. It was interesting, the um, well, transformational leadership, first of all, what that means for me is for those who have a vision of change. And in this context, it is certainly um, with respect to sort of the, the racial structure of this nation and its 400 year history with that. But also in, in, you know, in corporations, it's in that context of leading change, whether it's changing an industry changing the culture in an institution, um, but it has to do with leading change, cultivating the followers for that, creating the kind of culture, the vision, leading passionately from the heart. It, For me, transformational leadership embodies all of those things. 
when I think of who are transformational leaders, that was sort of challenging, but only from the standpoint that there are many. Uh, there are the traditional ones we you know, think of, the, the Gandhis and the uh, uh, Martin Luther King, um, the Malcolm Xs. And then I also thought about, uh, you know, particularly from the lens of Black culture, I think there are a lot of incredible artists that have been and are transformational leaders because many times over their history, they have been on the front lines, the Danny Glovers, the Harry Belafontes, the Sidney Portiers. Um, and so for me, people like that have also been transformational leaders. And today, a lot of the young artist singers are transformational leaders because they're speaking it in their music and in their song. So I'm going to stop there so that Howard might respond. Yeah, thanks, Karen. Yeah, I would I would agree. I'll, I'll pick up on the, the second part and then go back to the first. I think you're right. I think that there are leaders who who we know. I mean, um, and, and as you said, you know, we think back in terms of, of historical leaders. You know, transformation for me is is different than change. Um, you know, when we talk about change, we usually talk about moving something forward iteratively. Um, so we do it a little bit more of something. We do a little bit better. We do it a little bit different. But the fundamental form of what we're doing remains pretty much the same. Um, I think transformation, in, in transformation, the form actually changes. In other words, we're looking at something completely different. I think, you know, as an example, when we started to look at unconscious bias, one of the things we realized was that the standard form was looking at things from an us versus them standpoint in the context of, of diversity work. And you can do that a little bit better or a little bit more. You can convince people, all of this kind of stuff. But the, but the real transformation and looking at bias differently was we realized the difference in human intent. And that is that most of the things that people were doing weren't intentional. That fundamentally shifted our way of working with people because it meant that we had to try to get people to a different place. And so when I think of transformational leaders in business, I think of people like, um, oh my goodness, uh, I can't believe I'm drawing blank, but the guy who created USA Today, that was a transformational shift. Um, that was a transformational shift. The notion that the news could be national, a newspaper could be national as opposed to local, completely changed our way of looking at the news. Cable TV completely changed our way of looking at the news because it no longer had to be one central place to get the news. You know, so we can think of people in that domain. We can think of business leaders. One person who I had the real uh, privilege of working with closely was a guy named Henry Nacella, who was one the person who who took the staples from being just a, a small handful of stores to a major national market by looking at both people and business together. And so I think those those are the kinds of things that really have that kind of dramatic impact that we think about long into the future. Yeah, Howard, when you say that, the word metamorphosis comes to my mind. You know, it's, it's like you, you just described it, establishing completely new industries or ways of doing things that didn't even exist before. And th so those are, in fact, profound, you know, transformations. Yeah, and I appreciate this idea that the form actually changes. It's not incremental moving something forward, but the form actually changes. So there's, we often think about transformation as a, a change from which there is no going back. Um, yeah. And I and I heard you, I heard you describe that. So today we're talking about anti-racist leadership. Can you explain what that means and what does it have to do with transformational leadership? Sure, um, I'll jump in first this time. Um, I, Go ahead. You know, mm -hmm. I, I think you know. I mean, I think that the most um, sort of the person who's who's putting this this distinction of language out into the world most right now is Ibram Kendi, who's now at Boston University. And you know, Kendi makes the point, and and I agree with him that. Uh, if you've got a system like we have had in this country for 400 years, a system which 
has fundamental racism built into it. And I know that that triggers a lot of people when we say that. That doesn't mean that every single aspect of our system is is racially based, nor does it mean that every person in our system, every white person, for example, is an overt racist. What it means is that we've got 400 years of American history in which a, a narrative of racial difference has been created. And that narrative is that white people are better than people of color. And it shows up in every system in our environment. It shows up in our educational system, in our business environments. We know it shows up in terms of hiring practices and in terms of people who have access to health, quality health care. You know, we could go on and on. And so Kendi's point is that not doing anything, just simply not participating in that system doesn't stop that system from continuing forward. In other words, if we just sit back and we say, well, I'm not going to hurt anybody. I'm not going to exhibit conscious racist racist behavior towards anybody. That's certainly fine. I mean, there's nothing wrong with people (laughs) obviously avoiding exhibiting racist behavior, but it doesn't change that system. What changes the system is when you go in and actually actively do things to dissemble that system. So the metaphor I like to use, Bill, is that let's say I wake up one night and I hear a noise, I look outside and my neighbor's house is on fire. I can say, wow, that's really sad, but I didn't do anything to start that fire not my fault. Or I could pick up the phone and call the fire department and get out there and see if I can help. And the latter would be what we would consider anti-racist leadership, the former not so much. Yeah, when um, I also think of the anti-racism, I, you know, I think that our, our racialized socialization is so profoundly, deeply embedded in our, you know, internal way of being and our way of thinking about our world and our society. So it's almost not so much the overt actions that occur anymore, but it is just infused in in everything we do. And as Howard said, a 400 year legacy of that. And it almost becomes difficult to see. I mean, it's it is you know that's sort of what happens with culture. Um, it's culture is is artifacts, and it is a it's a feeling, it's a sense. It it becomes so deeply embedded that it feels almost hard to touch. And that's where we get to talking about uh, it's systemic anti racist leadership is also about, for me, what's important with anti-racist leadership is for us to really begin to dig into the the, uh, collective consciousness and the collective unconsciousness of our systems and pull out what that which has just become, it's sort of just absorbed into so deeply into the way that we do things and think about things that it's, uh, that it becomes very hard to put our hands around and pull out. We see the obvious things. We see the practices when we see um, the disproportionate killing or we see the ways in which uh, minority communities are disadvantaged. And those things are a product of these collective systems that are so deeply embedded, it's often hard to know what the levers are to make those changes. And so it today, uh, Howard described the sort of, I think you said the latter, the actions that would actually move to make these changes, the overt sort of processes and things that we have to consciously and intentionally do to begin to address these issues in ways that we haven't done before. And that's where it needs to be transformational. We've been working at this for a very long time. And given that, given that we've been working at this for so long, like, and it's always been important, what's important about anti-racist leadership for organizations, communities, the world, 
today? Like what makes it, you know, I know we've been working on this for many years, but what makes it particularly important at this moment in time? Well, I think, you know, it, Dr. King said long ago that uh, the arc of uh, history is long, but it bends towards justice. And I don't think there's any doubt that that's true. But if we do look at our history around these issues, we know that it's a history of taking three steps forward and two steps back. You know, my, my dear friend and mentor, Dr. Jeanetta Cole, uh, reminds me because she's 84 years old and grew up in the segregated South that uh, we have changed, but we know, of course, we saw it once again blindingly this summer with the the George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor killings. We saw it in the, the racist uh, flags and, and sweatshirts and things that were on display on January 6th during that awful day at the Capitol. We know that this is still with us and, and it kind of rears its ugly head at different times. And, and so, you know, we have one of those moments in history where once again, it's become too obvious for us to ignore um, and it's important to take advantage of times like that because those are often the times when we have these huge breakthroughs. I mean, I think it's in a way it ties back to what we were saying before. I think most people, as Karen said, would consider Dr. King a transformational leader. There's no question about that in the context of this country. But it wasn't just Dr. King. It was also the timing that Dr. King happened to come across the scene. You know, Dr. King was a mentee of Vernon Johns, who was out there doing a lot of work in the South before that, but but it didn't resonate quite in the same way that at that particular moment in time. And so I do think when we look at historical movements, um, it is, timing is a big factor. And we are at the time right now because of many things, many reasons that uh, we're very clear that this is an issue we still need to address. Yeah. And I would, I would add to that, you know, we're the fact that we've seen this rise in white nationalism in this country, you know, it almost feels like we've gone backwards 50 years in terms of what's happened in recent times. But even before the rise of that, the wealth gap in this country, the health gap in this country, the economic well-being for people of color and marginalized people, um, it is not uh, improving in the way that it ought to be improving. And now with with COVID, uh, you know, we, we get all of these constant examples um, of how uh, certain portions of the society, uh, because of the structure of racism, um, gets more severely impacted and it results in shorter lifespans. And so, you know, th there are just profoundly compelling reasons for us to pay attention and do something about this in order to be the nation um, and society that we purport to be in the world. One of the principles we talk about at the Institute for Transformational Leadership is the role of crucible moments or these watershed moments and the role they play in triggering transformations in leaders, organizations, communities. How would you connect this idea of crucible moments to anti-racist leadership? Well, I think we, we saw a great example of a crucible moment back at the end of May when George Floyd was lynched. You know, I mean, that was a crucible moment. I, you know, I, I remember, you may remember that, that shortly after that, Oprah Winfrey had on a, a two night kind of special where she had a lot of intelligentsia from the black community, you know, various different profet, you know, Kendi was on, some other people who were on and Ava DuVernay, the great filmmaker was on. And, and she asked Ava, what was it about this particular example, uh, the George Floyd killing that was so profoundly impactful on people in a way that others hadn't been. And Ava said, she said, you know, 
she thought a lot about it because she, of course, had seen many, many films like this when she was filming Selma or 13th or some of the other movies she made. She said she thinks the real reason was because for the first time we could see the perpetrator's face the entire time, that we were looking at Derek Chauvin's face while he had his knee on George Floyd's neck. And, um, and, and that that impacted people in a way that other things hadn't. And of course, we saw that huge explosion of anger, frustration, sadness, grief um, all over the United States, which was transformational, led to lots of companies taking steps they hadn't done before. A lot of CEOs joined the CEO Pledge for Action that Tim Ryan, the PwC had started a few years ago. All of a sudden, people launched into action. And it was built on that particular crucible moment. Yeah, and I think it, and you've articulated all the things that were important about that. But the 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 fact that young people of color and young white people poured into the streets and were fighting together. You ask any senior uh, Hispanic or African American person uh, about what's been so important, and so that that gives them hope. And it is that they have witnessed these, you know, people coming together like we have not seen before uh, across ethnic and racial lines. And so that has just been, I think, powerfully moving that they are ready to put their lives on the line in a different way and not not retreat. And and so um, I think that that, you know, was part of what that crucible moment uh, produced. And it makes me think about our our long history. One of my particular sources of inspiration and heroes, if you will, during this time has been John Lewis. And since his passing, I've been really diving into a lot of his work and reading about him. And I think about the his moment on the bridge as a crucible moment. Like I think about there are these collective crucible moments, and then there are these crucible moments for particular individuals, which really transform the way they, the way they lead and move forward. Yeah, I think that's true. I think you often find that. And, and sometimes um, those crucible moments for individuals uh, come at times of the dark night of the soul. You know, when you're you're confronted with something at a deeper level, you're either your own survival or or, or something that really challenges your fundamental consciousness, um, something that challenges the fundamental way you've looked at the world in, in, in such a profound way that it sets you back on your heels and causes you to reevaluate. I know for some people, it can be times that are really difficult. I know for myself, for example, in my first marriage, ended. Um, it set me It set me on a completely different path in life um, that I w- probably would not have had to experience had I not had the trigger of that event. Um, and that's led to extraordinarily wonderful things in my life, not to mention my, my current wife and partner, Leslie, who I've been together with for almost 30 years, my children, who, my son who came from that marriage, you know, just on and on and on. So, um, so it's really interesting, you know, sometimes... Um, Sometimes it's the moments that that challenge us the most that are the most growth inducing. It, you know, and I, and I want to throw the siege of the Capitol in, not, you know, um, if, if from the standpoint of that also being a crucible moment for me around just democracy and not just for the United States. It was a global crucible moment because of what we have purportedly stood for as a nation that's supposed to be welcoming to everyone and stand for this democracy. And the world bore witness to that. And so while we haven't seen that fully unfold and all of the implications are still in process, but for many reasons for me, I believe that that will also turn out to be a crucible moment in the history of our of our com- country because it's challenged so many things that we just would not have believed that that would have happened and that our democracy could be so fragile. 
One of the things I often think about when I think about these crucible moments is they can be a trigger for growth or they can cause us either individually or collectively to retreat and retrench into old patterns of behavior. How do we ensure, and this question came up with a group of students I was with last week, how do we ensure that this moment individually or collectively serves our growth and not a deeply entrenching into old patterns? I think, I think uh, Bill, that, that one of the things that's important is to understand our relationship with fear. Um, and because so often the, the, you know, the determinant uh, as to which way it goes is how we deal with fear in our system. You know, when, when we're dealing with something as cataclysmic, if you think back to 9-11, for example, and, and I'd suggest that ever since 9-11, we've been in post-traumatic stress as a culture. Mm. We've never really recovered from 9-11 and the impact that that had on us here in the United States. So what begins to happen at that time is we know that that from the standpoint of the neurobiology is an amygdala hijacking occurs at times like that. The amygdala, the fear center of the brain takes over our whole system. Now, with that triggers the fundamental fight versus flight dynamic that we know we all have as human beings. And now we say fight, flight, and freeze. And so for people who are more flight oriented, what do we do? We retrench into that which is safe, that which we know, that which we're used to. And so in circumstances like that, we often will pull back to times when this is a little bit what was in this, this notion of make America great again. I say that with air quotes because it's saying to people, it's hard now. Let's go back to a time when we felt comfortable. Now, the problem with that, of course, is that during that time when a lot of people in our country felt comfortable, especially white people, people of color were very uncomfortable. We're not at all allowed to be equal citizens. We're in some cases terrorized. We're denied the vote. We're denied all kinds of things. And so what was safe for one group was actually devastating for another group. And, and then you've got people who respond in, in the opposite way, who, when they're confronted with something like this, decide things need to be different and they move forward and change things. And so a lot of it has to do with that personal and collective relationship we have with how we're dealing with the fear that gets generated at times like that. And I, I would add that, I mean, I think that there will always be uh, both of those polarities coexisting. And, um, and hopefully what happens is courage compassion and a greater vision pulls more of us forward than those who are there because this is you know we saw something just reemerge that you know clearly that's been there all along i think this is also where the piece about leadership comes we've had leadership up until fairly recently that um while all different stripes of leadership by and large it has as a society we have wanted to suppress that really overt, not go back to days of lynching and those kinds of mentalities about race relations and leadership of all kinds have, uh, in terms of how we've managed the country and tried to move ahead in a lot of ways. Leadership has been of vital importance in pushing that forward and in sometimes suppressing those counter narratives to at least a survivable level so that we can make progress even when it's incremental. And when that gets totally stripped away, the forces that come out, you know, for me, what we've they just become unbridled. And so now we're trying to get it back in the box again so we can continue to move forward. We have portions of this country, you know, when you look at portions of the country where there's not a lot of, of interracial relationships, connections, or just people that are diverse people populating cities and, and states. And in other regions of the country, people come together, they interact, they have a sense of who the other, who other is. And so um, it's important 
uh, to have leadership that then can have a vision of us sort of moving forward. And, and that to me is where our highest ideals of who we are are often which keep us moving forward when a lot of our behaviors on a day-to-day basis and, and our um, implicit and unconscious biases are still, you know, uh, can be actively being fomented. So Karen, if I could follow up, because you've used the word vision a, a couple of times as you were just talking, what would you say is the role of, of having a vision in anti-racist leadership? Oh, I think it's powerely important. And, and, and you know, who I'm going to pick at this moment, that just highlights that for me is Little Miss Amanda Gordon, the hill we climb, you know, the young woman who was the youth poet laureate um, there. Uh, she wanted to write a poem that she could use her words, as she said, to envision a way in which the country could come together and still heal. And, and uh, she just, I mean, she was so clear about that after witnessing what happened that she, she wrote to that, uh, to that effect. Um, and so it was, it, to me, she put forth a vision that, you know, we were more than the differences between us. Um, that, you know, I, I don't remember her exact words, but, you know, it was more important what stood before us. And, you know, I mean, that sort of was like a candle that lit the world up. And, you know, in terms of, I got friends that contacted me from Sweden and from Africa who were watching that, Americans who were overseas. And they were just, everybody was so moved by that little beacon of light, that little flame candle that was a visionary possibility of who we really have the possibility to be. And so, you know, though it's things like that to me that make vision so, so important. Yeah, I think there's something really important to understand in this. And that is that human beings are inspired by building things. We're not inspired by fixing things. I mean, we have to fix things at times, of course, in order to build things, we have to fix things that are broken or aren't working. But when that's all we're doing, life feels a little bit like playing one of those games of whack-a-mole that you see at the carnival, you know, problem here, problem there, problem here, problem here. We're just going around, you know, addressing the problems. When we think of the, the people who have been extraordinary, you know, the transformational leaders, when we think of things that trigger great movements, they are often, I mean, think of Dr. King's speech, I have a dream, you know, this was a, this was a visionary concept, you know, he painted a picture for America that many Americans had never really even thought um, of as being possible. Um, and in the process of doing that, in the process of painting that that picture, in the process of that dream, he inspired an entire nation to move forward. And I think similarly, um, when we take on these issues, it's so important that we have some sense of what we're working towards, not just what we're trying to correct, mm-hmm. because that's what keeps people going day after day um, when the fight gets hard. Yeah, I think often in these moments, I remember one of my early mentors used to say there has to be a vision that's big enough to grab onto so when it gets hard we don't we don't retreat back into the the safety of our comfort zone so there has to be something big enough and inspiring enough to pull us forward so that we don't fall back amen i think that makes that is exactly right yeah, one of the central tenets of our work at ITL is that in order to lead transformation leaders need to be doing their own internal work mm-hmm. So what would you say is the internal work leaders need to do to be anti-racist leaders? Howard, you jump in first and I'll come behind. Okay, sure. Be glad to. Um, well, I think, first of all, uh, one of the things that we've begun to realize after doing this work, I've been doing it now professionally for more than 35 years and I think started when I went to my first civil rights meeting when I was like 16. So I just turned 70. So that's 54 years ago now. 
You know, I think many of us who get involved in doing this work are coming from our own internal wounding. In my case, it was my family's experience in the Holocaust that undoubtedly, you know, contributed to the fact that I do this work. I mean, I didn't even realize that until many, many years later, but it was that orientation that that bad things can happen and you're supposed to do something about it. And I, and I think one of the things that's, that's so important is that we understand what those motivations are, because when we haven't taken on healing our own internal pain, what we do is we look for people outside of ourselves to change so that we'll be comfortable. And that's where we get into this sort of fixing mindset. We're trying to fix this person or that person. And in the old days, when we did, for example, diversity training, it was very much that sort of find them and fix them work. You know, who's the racist here? Who's the sexist here? Who's the homophobe? How do we get them to change? And, you know, as we know now, when, pe- when people feel like you're trying to fix them, it triggers activity in the dorsal posterior insula of the brain, the same region of the brain associated with physical pain. So it doesn't really work all that well. Usually people will say what they think they need to say to get themselves off the hot seat, but it doesn't lead to, to that kind of change. So I think, I think it's really important um, that those of us who are doing the work um, have a deep sense of understanding what's motivated uh, motivating us, how we're responding and reacting to other people, how the narrative that we've grown up with in, in society has affected us. You know, for example, as a white skinned man, whether I like it or not, I benefit from privilege in this culture. Pretending like that's not true is is not only inauthentic, but dangerous. And so even as I'm doing this work, I'm also grappling with my own white male privilege um, in, in how that shows up. And so, and so I think all of us have our own individual little internal chemistry set that, that the more aware of, the more likely we are to be able to, to do good work. Karen? Yeah, I just think the inner work piece is so important. And and actually, Howard, I always think you're a great model around that, uh, just from in terms of, you know, some of the ways in which you teach that, you know, it's sort of that internal awareness that, um, you know, inner journey about who you are and what's important and having a higher view and vision and working on that and, you know, working from the heart. I mean, those kinds of pieces, I think, become important in opening yourself to other humanities. Um, and and for, you know, you, for white people, often I also think it means understanding their own racial identity development, understanding how white societal values and standards affect the other groups that they're, you know, co-partners with uh, um, in the United States and, and, and perhaps on the planet, given that that's where most of the economic wealth is. And so um, it becomes important to understand ways in which you participate in racism, maybe without even knowing it and understanding what happens with white racial socialization and um, in terms of the possibility of creating a new and different kind of positive racial identity awareness. Yeah, one, of my, one of my favorite quotes from John Lewis, and I'm paraphrasing, he talks about that in order to lead transformation in the systems around us, we have to start with transforming ourselves in order to be able to see how to transform the exter- the external systems of, of which we're part of. Look, I don't think there's any question about that. One. And, and I don't think there's any question that when we have had these moments, you know, of being, you know, especially I, I can speak again as, as being somebody who's in the dominant group, you know, the, the experience that I've had teaching at Bennett College for Women, being the only white man on a campus of black women, you know, for a year while I was doing that work, um, being on the external diversity advisory board as a, as a straight guy, the only straight man in that group, you know, uh, for the uh, human rights campaign, you know, things like that, times when we, we actually have the experience of being the other in a particular group. And, and for, for many folks who, are, who live in dominant group, particularly white folks, 
Um, that's not something that we really experience. Even when we're in mixed groups, often the culture of the group tends to lean towards the dominant group because that's the, that's the sort of socialization pattern we've all had. So when we get into those circumstances, when we're outside of that dominant group and when we, and we get a chance to experience that, all of a sudden it's like, wow, now I see what that feels like in a different way. It's not the same. I'm not pretending it's the same because it's a, it's a brief moment or a contained moment. But nonetheless, at least we get a window into that. And that's when some of those great, at least in my life, when some of those great wake-up moments have, have come. Yeah, and I even think, you know, as as person, as a woman of color, you know, as 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 people of African descent, I mean, you know, you have to develop partnership. You know, we're a small percentage of the total population, so you you're growing in awareness and relationships and connections and friendships and partnerships um, are are important to make these sort of changes. Uh, you know, someone who stands out for me um, in a in a big way like that, uh, Reverend. Uh, Barber, who's in North Carolina, and the moral, uh, I think they call it Moral Monday, but the moral majority movement um, for the, the Poor People's Campaign. Um, he, he really represents uh, someone uh, today who also pulls together people of all races and classes to really fight uh, not poverty and systemic racism in a very powerful kind of a way. And so, you know, we can't do it alone. We've got to have partnerships to move this thing forward. So um, that take means having those kinds of relationships. And that's what it means to be able to see the humanity in one another in the first place is that we can race, reach across those divides because we want something different for, for, for all of us. Yeah, this conversation makes me think about a moment when I was. Somebody pointed out that there were there were two gay men or two white men in a in a leadership role, and my immediate response was, "I'm not a white man, I'm a gay man." And it really struck me like it was this moment for me of recognizing that I was so identified with my my non dominant identity mm. that I completely ignored the impact of my dominant identity. Mm. And and that was for me this crucible moment that launched me on this on this path of doing my own internal work mm. that completely transformed the way I think about my own leadership. Mm. And it wouldn't have come without what you were talking about, Karen, of like the support of people who could I could be in relationship with and who could give me honest feedback and and help me see what I couldn't see in a way that I could hear. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, Bill, it's funny when you say that I'm reminded of a, um, for two years after the Million Man March, back whenever that was, 2000, 2001, something like that, I facilitated, this is a pro bono project, a gathering of black ministers and rabbis in the city. Um, we had about 30 people from each group, and we would meet once a month for, for an extended lunch period, two or three hours, and then about once a quarter, we would do a full day session. And the purpose was to rebuild that relationship between blacks and Jews that was so important in the early days of civil rights, but which has frayed over the years. And one of the seminal conversations we had in that session with these you know, dozens of, of black ministers and rabbis um, was the very thing you're talking about, which is that the rabbis would say, we're not white, we're Jewish. And, and the African-American ministers would say, uh, look in the mirror, you know. But what, of course, of course, in a way, both were right, you know, because 
um, in a way, you know, being Jewish is a very different historical and cultural experience than, than being white Anglo-Saxon, for example, in this country, and that Jews come from history of oppression themselves, and many have were not even in the country in the 19th century. You know, most of Jewish immigration happened in the 20th century or beyond. Um, and so there is a very distinct cultural orientation, which is why there's no surprise that so many Jews do get involved in movement orientation. On the other hand, the African-American ministers were also right because no matter how much I am Jewish, when I walk outside, what people see is a tall white guy. And so that's still a reality as well. So so it, it's a it's an interesting juxtaposition between these these identities and how they play themselves out. Karen, you were talking about this. So I'd love to pick up on a thread that you started to talk about the, the importance of connections and relationships. Like we know that support is a crucial element of helping people transform. So what would you say is the role of support in anti-racist leadership and helping people step into the possibility of becoming anti-racist leaders? You know, that support is important as much as having diverse partners that you're engaging in it with as a part of that support. Because there are people, there are some people that I can speak into their listening, and then there will be others who will not hear me because they're so caught up in my package that Howard, as an example, could speak into their listening. So that's a form of support, too, that, you know, broadening that piece about connection and working with other people um, uh, who can relate and connect to people that you're trying to reach. So as anti-racist leaders, we need all kinds of partnership and relationships uh, in terms of support. It just, the piece about um, it requiring fearlessness and courage and, you know, fearlessness does not mean, as Howard talked extensively about fear, that you're without fear, um, but that just you will override that fear, which is what John Lewis did. I am sure every moment he walked across that bridge, he was terrified he would never return to cross back over it. But the great, you know, the, the fearlessness of and having the support and having others who hold that vision with you and who are willing to go with you, um, you know, made some of those things possible that you would just be terrified to do um, alone and on your own. So, you know, having movements are important. You know, this collective movement that we've talked about, you know, that we've seen from the from the young people that we've seen from a, a Reverend Barber, that this collective movement that we've witnessed in Georgia with Stacey Abrams um, in terms mm -hmm. of pulling people together, uh, you know, around an ideal where all kinds of she just transformed the whole voting process, particularly for people of color and dealing with voter suppression. Um, so that meant support of organizations and creating, getting people, other people who bought in that vision and saw that possibility. And it became a collective emotional movement. It just, it, you know, and, and to me, that was an amazing example of many kinds of organizations and constituents and just individuals who decided to step up because of that leadership and that sort of collective support that sometimes was probably almost unspoken. And I say unspoken when you witnessed all those people who nobody had to tell them to go out and vote. They knew from what it, the moment that we were standing in that there was nothing more important than going out and casting that ballot before voting day. And so you saw almost a silent support that was just pervasive and just powerful. So, you know, in that way, support is also emotional. It, it is just sort of this collective conscious moment 
of people coming together because they see a possibility and they're so close. It was almost like a religious movement, a spiritual movement that people move toward that place. And so that inspires, uh, that becomes inspiring. And I think that we'll see many new young leaders who are inspired to, to work like that and understand the importance of connection and connecting the movements together. Yeah, you know, Karen, when you're talking about fear and our relationship with fear, I couldn't help but think about Dr. King's, um, one, another one of Dr. King's famous quotes where he said something like, the ultimate measure of a man is not where he stands in moments of comfort and convenience, but where he stands in times of challenge and controversy. And I think that that's true. You know, we tend to associate courage with, well, look at that guy, you know, he's going skydiving or, you know, exports or things like that. But the truth is for people who get engaged, a lot of people who get engaged in that stuff, it's 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 really fun. It's not it, that same person might might be more frightened of saying I love you to somebody they care about than they will going out and jumping out of an airplane. So, but I think that that uh, we do know that it does take a willingness to step into the void. And sometimes those are little things and sometimes those those are big things. But how challenging something is is of course always a measure of the individual because what's easy for one person could be very difficult for somebody else. So as we come towards the end of our time, I always like to end with this question I would love to hear from both of you. What's the one thing that if our listeners took nothing else from our conversation today, you would want them to hear? Erin? Um, yeah, I was in my humming too. I think um, acting more consciously um, it, you know, on this issue of, of, of race and moving forward, which has to do with being intentional. Um, it's not enough to, to go to one training after another or, uh, to, to, um, you know, proclaim that you're anti-racist. It's like, what is the contribution that you're making? What are you willing to do to actively create or foster or identify a issue um, to move forward. It's so it is sort of like a personal activism and being willing to step up and step into that to be a part of the change process. Um, and it can be a subtle thing or it can be an overt thing, but just as a conscious, consciously and with intentionality to uh, help us move ourselves, to understand our racial selves and to do something about moving it forward. I know that probably says several things in there, and, I, and I, I guess I don't know that it could be one thing, but, you know, it takes courage, it takes, con you know, consciousness, and it clearly takes intentionality. I think, uh, Bill, I think if, if, if I were to think about it, I would say that in order to really do this work, we have to have compassion. We have to have compassion for ourselves, and we have to have compassion for other people, because when we really look at it, most of us were trained by the culture that we're a part of to be and do exactly what we're saying, being and doing. Um, it wasn't like we woke up one day and decided to think these things. We were trained by our culture to think these things. And when we demonize each other for these beliefs, and I'm of course not talking about David Duke or Richard Spencer or people who are out there on the edge, you know, really hate mongers. I'm talking about most of us every day who don't wake up in the morning and wring our hands and say, how can I suppress women and people of color today? You know, that's not the way it happens. It happens because of these patterns that have been built into us. And if we have compassion for ourselves and empathy for others, um, then we can address those patterns without feeling like we need to demonize ourselves, beat ourselves up or demonize other people. And we're far more likely to see the humanity in each other. And it's from that place that we can connect and rebuild together. Beautiful. 
Well, I could easily keep going on this conversation forever because there is so much more we could talk about. But I want to thank both of you for joining me today and sharing your knowledge and experience and wisdom. Thank you. It's a pleasure, Bill. And a big thank you to everyone who listened in. Please join us for future podcasts. And to learn more about the Institute for Transformational Leadership and the programs we offer, you can go to scs.georgetown.edu and click on the Institutes and Centers tab and look for the Institute for Transformational Leadership. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. Produced by Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies.